Good evening, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage for this evening. So tonight we'll be reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, You can Bible from the back of the pew in front of you. And if you need a Bible to keep, we do have some at the welcome table in the lobby, and you can keep that as our gift to you. So once again, we'll be reading from Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Thank you, Betsy. Well, it's great to be back with you guys. Uh, Good evening to you. And if you're new, uh, regardless of what your church background is, maybe you're exploring the faith for the first time, maybe you've been going to church your entire life, uh, wherever you fall in that spectrum, uh, we're really glad you're here. My name is Steve, and we are working through the book of Hebrews uh, for those of you who are new. And the theme of Hebrews, because Hebrews is a rich book, and it can be easy to get lost in wondering what is the book about. And so what we're hammering each week, we want even our children to remember this, is Hebrews, the main message of Hebrews is persevere, draw near to Christ, do it together, right? So persevere, draw near, do it together. And along this theme of draw near, I was thinking about it this week, and one of the biggest differences that Hebrews has made in my life as we've been going through Hebrews over the past five months, and I hope it has for you as well, is as we think about drawing near to Christ, uh, it's this reality that Jesus isn't just a historical figure, uh, but he's a living reality, a living person in our lives today. Um, It's startling because even Hebrews uses this language, like even the cross, as vital as that was, was really just a means to an end for Christ to do what he's doing for us today, of being with us to give us mercy and strength in time of need and to ultimately bring us fully into his kingdom. And so um, I think just it can be helpful every now and then to ask questions to yourself. Like if, you know, someone who, whether they're a Christian or not, as they look at your life or even as you examine your own life, like would somebody say that for you believing the gospel means that you assent to a particular set of facts, like you believe facts about God and Jesus in the Bible, or is it clear, not just to other people, but to you, uh, that Jesus is a living presence with you today? Um, and I, I just, I love that. That's changed me a lot, even as I think about my relationship with Christ. And so uh, along that, that train of thought, what we're going to look at today is this idea of draw near, um, because we've been saying this for five months now, persevere, draw near, persevere, draw near. And so a question we have to ask is, how do we actually draw near? And this passage answers that in pretty explicit terms, and so that's what we're going to look at. So we'll just look at under uh, these two headings as our outline for today. First, we'll look at what does drawing near look like, uh, according to Hebrews. 
And then number two, how do we practice that once we know that it looks like, what it looks like? So first, um, just what does drawing near to God look like? And then number two, um, how do we practice that once we know what it looks like? Okay, so first to start, what is drawing near to God? Like, what does that actually look like in practice? And so let's start verse 19 to 21. And what the author is doing here is he's setting things up. So notice he reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And then verse 21, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. One of the things that I love about the gospel is God never tells us to do something without first telling us what he's already done for us, right? So he brings us into his family by grace and then equips us to live with new purpose. It's amazing. And so when he's saying, since we have confidence, since we have a great high priest, he's summarizing there the shocking gifts that he's been going over that we get as believers in chapters 7 through 10. He's been going over this for four chapters now. And if you want to summarize uh, chapter 7 through 10, what it says is that in the Old Testament times before Jesus came, essentially only one person could get really close access to God, and that was the high priest, and even then that was only once per year, and even then it was only, he had to do many sacrifices, all kinds of sacrifices, just to get into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle where God dwelled. And so you could say in the Old Testament, the invitation to draw near had stoplights and warning signs, like all over it you know, draw near with caution. But what we have through Jesus is through his once-for-all sacrifice of his body, and then through him raising from the dead, and then now loving us to the uttermost today, and praying for us today, and giving strength to us today. Now when we get the invitation to draw near, it's not a draw near with stop signs and warning lights. It's this intimate, abiding, draw near now kind of assurance is what we get. And then so now we have to ask, okay, if if the cash value of four chapters of rich theology in Hebrews is draw near now, how do we do this? How do we access the access that we've been given given, uh, by Jesus to God? And he tells us, and it's a surprising answer. It's not what we would think. And so we get some hints first in verse 22, or first in verse 21, where he says we have a great high priest over the house of God. That's the church corporate language. Verse 22, let us draw near. So notice the plural language. And then it culminates in verse 24, let's stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. And so the way we draw near to God, essentially what he's writing, or not essentially, he, this, is, this is the message, is by joining a local church, becoming a member, And then while you're there, encouraging each other, meeting regularly, and stirring one another up to love and good works. And this is interesting because when we think of drawing near to God, I think we often conceptualize that as a feeling. Like if I feel warm and fuzzy, that means I'm drawing near to God. And that may be true. Or we think of drawing near to God as a time of solitude. You know, we're in my personal, private Bible reading and prayer in the morning. And that is true. Like, to be clear, God will not seem real or personal to you unless you're regularly communing with him on your own, just as Jesus did when he walked the earth. But yet here, what Hebrews, and it's more than just here, and Jesus uses this language too, is that kind of individualistic thought of I draw near to God mainly when I'm by myself. It's woefully incomplete. We draw near to God and experience him often in more powerful ways when we meet together 
as the gathered body of believers. That's Sunday worship, small group, even smaller groups over dinner and so forth. And this idea, you know, is especially more, I feel like almost every week, you know, I was just speaking to uh, a neighbor the other week who just made the comment to me, you know, I, I do love God, I just don't like the church. And we hear language more and more like that, like often for good reason, um, sometimes for not so good reason. But that, that's a mindset that's becoming more and more common, even amongst professing Christians. But also we need to look at this in light of the, the, you know, the rise in popularity of live streaming church services, you know, like in particular since the pandemic. And I thought of this because, so just the other day, I was talking to a different neighbor. I was out getting the mail, ran across them. We were talking, getting to know each other because Kelsey and I are new to the neighborhood. And they find out I'm a pastor. And when people find out you're a pastor, you get a lot of funny comments. And this wasn't, this, this wasn't that radical, but they, they asked me just a sensible question. They were like, are you having a hard time encouraging your members to come to church? Just in light of the pandemic, I was actually like, no, like our, you know, our members love coming to church. And then they continue and they say, you know, because I'm actually a staff member at a church and it's a large church and I, you know, help with administration at the church and I don't go to church anymore. And they were like, you know, because it's just, it's really nice to, you know, wake up later on Sunday morning, make my coffee, stay in my PJs, and curl up on the sofa and watch church. And I was just like, you know I'm a pastor. <laughs> like, what do you expect me to say? And I was just like, I bet it is nice. <laughs> I wish I could do that. And I, I don't say this to belittle, be, like, this was totally me, okay, before, if live streaming was a thing before people started to disciple me in this way, like, that would totally be me, and so, like, we just have to ask, you know, that mindset that's very, you know, does live streaming have its place in marginal cases, of course, and we just did one a few weeks ago during the evening snowstorm, we did it when COVID started, you know, for, for obvious reasons, but that mindset of church is the same, you know, from the privacy of my home, or even just the broader mindset of, I don't need to commit to a church to be a believer. But think about the live stream thing. What does that say about how you view church? And I think what it says is, like, when that's your main approach to church, is essentially what the worship service becomes is a product to consume anonymously. It's basically just like a product for consumption, rather than an embodied gathering of interconnected individuals where we experience God in greater and deeper ways, you know, than we do while we're on our own. You know, in the same way that a house isn't a house unless all its bricks are together, it's hard for us to experience the presence of God unless we come together. And so just two, you know, thoughts as we think about this idea, which, you know, is increasingly foreign and it may even be rubbing some, some of you in the wrong way. There's a, there's a heavy implication of this and then a more, you know, lighthearted or wondrous implication. And the heavy implication is, notice what the, uh, the author writes at the very end. Do this, meet together and encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right? That's when Christ comes to exact judgment and renew the world. And then what's immediately after this in verse 26? For, in other words, we need to keep meeting together. For if we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. We'll be getting to that passage in more detail next week. But what this is saying is gathering as a body, you know, assuming you, you can, this isn't a, like, a nice to have, or you just do it if your margins are wide. Like, the eternal stakes are very high with this. And, you know, some of the context of Hebrews is there are people getting apathetic in the congregation, 
And what we see here is apathy toward the gathered body is really the first step toward apostasy. So I think we, you know, we need to think about this as we consider the church, as we encourage other people going to church. Um, and I was just talking with uh, one of our attenders recently, and they put it this way, and I told them I might steal this idea, but they were talking with someone who doesn't know Jesus the other day, and they were asking them, you know, like, why is going to church, why does that really matter? Why can't you just read your Bible on your own? And they were watching Star Wars together. And they said, and they were watching episode three, you know, where Anakin turns to the dark side. And their point was, I thought it was a pretty good illustration, that's why I'm stealing it, is because, you know, Anakin, he stopped listening to the right community of people, right, until the words of the emperor, and sorry if you haven't seen it, but it's been out for like 20 years, so, um, you know, he began to listen to the wrong community, and when he stopped, you know, regularly being in the community of the Jedi, he went to the dark side, and that's one of the implications here. When we stop meeting together, we don't stay neutral, but we actually go the other way, because that, that's, the, that's the hard part of this implication about meeting together, but then when we think about this more positively, what this is saying is when, you know, we come together to gather Essentially what's happening is the author is giving us a picture behind the veil, and what's taking place is when we come into church, it's actually like we are entering the holy innermost part of the temple, right, in the the heavenly city, and drawing near to God and receiving strength and mercy to help in time of need that doesn't happen when we're just on our own. Like, that should change our view of the church. It's a glory, you know, it looks so ordinary, and in many ways it is. But God's doing miraculous things here even as we gather. Okay, so that, that's just the first thing. What does drawing near look, look like? Looks like what we're doing right now. And we'll continue doing what we do in small group, gathering together, encouraging one another throughout the week. Okay, so now that we know what does drawing near look like, uh, what are some ways that we actually practice, right? So clearly, okay, we meet together. So now what do we do when we meet together? And many things, but we'll focus on the two things that this passage, is, that this passage focuses on. And the first thing is... Verse 25, we see not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Isn't that fascinating? Like, notice what's on the other side of the but. He doesn't say, don't neglect to meet, but instead meet. It's don't neglect to meet, but instead encourage. Like, the opposite of not meeting isn't meeting. The opposite of not meeting is encouraging. And this is profound because... When we typically think about going to church, it's often through, just by default, a me-centered lens, right? So whether it's a community group, discipleship group, going to church service, it's usually, you know, do I feel tired or not? Have I had a hectic work week or not? You know, are things crazy? It's, it's usually through a me-centered lens. But here what we're seeing is we actually don't just need to think about, okay, what is this church service or this small group going to do for me? Although that's true. But we also need to heavily consider What's it going to do for the other people that are, that are going to be there? And how's it going to help them persevere and draw near in their faith? And as we think about this practically, okay, so as we go, it's not just I don't just go to receive, although we do. It's also we go by encouraging. And so what does that look like, practically speaking? And one way that it looks is um, there's this helpful verse in Romans 15 where it says, welcome one another, and it's talking about the gathered church, welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed you. So we have to ask, how has Jesus welcomed us? We were oblivious to him. We were difficult to him. And what did he do? He drew near to us to then draw us near to him. 
And as we think about our relationships with one another in the church, often, and here's a, an image I'm taking from a pastor named Sam Albury. He says, you know, often in the church, we tend to view the gospel, the vertical gospel of our relationship with God, merely in terms of an economic transaction. So Jesus cancels our debt. He pays for our sins on the cross. Yes and amen, that's true. But if that's the only or primary grid that you view the gospel through, and you think about how that impacts your horizontal relationships, what that means is then when we look at others, and especially in a you know, larger group like the church, we tend to reduce relationships to, I just need to make sure I don't have issues with people. Right? As opposed to welcoming them and drawing near to them, just as Christ has first done to us. And so as you think about, you know, your interactions in the church, especially with, you know, the people who are, who don't resonate with you as well, because it, it's easy to welcome those who we click with immediately, right? Just something to encourage you, you know, like, it can just be helpful when you're at worship service or at a small group or out somewhere else. You know, inevitably, either you find yourself with someone or you see someone not far away and you think to yourself, that person's a lot of hard work to talk to, <laughs> I hope I'm not the only one. I, I love you guys, okay? But, like, you just think, okay, like, that person, it's just harder for me to have a conversation with them, right? For any number of reasons. That's actually a good indicator because when you move toward that person or decide to stay in that conversation rather than just ending it as quickly as you can, that's a sign that God is actually making you more into the image of Jesus. Because when we have to stretch to, to actually love people that are harder to love, that makes us more like Christ. And therefore, we experience more of God when that happens. And this happens, I mean, in profound, I can't tell you how many times, you know, before I was in ministry and, and since I've been in ministry, that someone has just made a, you know, a one-sentence comment to me or asked me a question that has helped me continue for the next month. Like, you never know how, how God's going to do that. And for those of you who may be thinking, Oh gosh, like I don't just have to get myself to church, but I have to encourage someone. You know, I, I don't have profound wisdom to share with people. Uh, or, you know, maybe you're thinking like, I have so much anxiety that it's just, it feels like this massive burden just to get out the door. You know, let alone to think about welcoming somebody else in church. And so just something to encourage you. Um, this is what I love about the kingdom of heaven is God uses often the most unexpected people to encourage others. One of the things that's been the most encouraging for me is when I see one of you who I know is battling debilitating fear or intense pain or incredible sorrow or depression, and you just walk in the door and sit to hear the songs of heaven to taste the future heavenly banquet of heaven, the Lord's Supper, to hear the words of heaven as we speak God's word to one another, to see you doing that when I know how hard it was for you just to get to church, that fuels my faith, and that gives me hope. And so you have no idea, even just by going and being present and someone else seeing you there, how much that encourages someone else. They may never tell you, but you play a huge role in helping them continue in faith. Okay, and that's, that's great news, especially for those of us who often feel uh, inept. 
So that, that's the first thing we do when we gather. We encourage one another. Uh, what's the second? And that can happen passively or actively. What's the second thing we do? We stir one another up to love and good works. We see that in verse 24. Let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And so this word here for stir up, uh, the word there actually, you can translate it provoke or irritate. Like you have to provoke or irritate one another to love and good works. And that's annoyingly accurate because it reveals that our default position is self-centeredness. Like, we have to be poked and prodded to do love and good works. And I think about uh, me when Kelsey and I first joined a church that did church membership. And we were talking with one of the ministry directors, and they said, you know, hey, we really think you guys should serve on the logistics team. And we said, okay, sure, you know, sign us up, happy to help out. And then I learned that logistics in church is a euphemism for picking up really heavy boxes outside rain or shine from a trailer and carrying them <laughs> inside. And the church, their first service started at 9 a.m., which meant we had to arrive at 7 a.m., which meant we had to wake up at 5.30 in the morning because we lived far away from church. I'll never forget that first Sunday. We were working six-day work weeks. That first Sunday morning, the alarm goes off at 5.30 in the morning. I'm exhausted. And I look at Kelsey and I go, why in the name of all that is holy— are we doing this, <laughs> you know, and, but we started doing it, and, you know, both her and other people have, like, that period of my life helped to break me out of the mindset that my life is about me, and that church is about me, and that I'm setting up so that people who don't even know people are setting up can come in and draw near to God, and other people have, have looked at me and said, you know, I remember that season. It was a time that I saw a marked shift in you, where you, you grew a lot spiritually. And this is what we get to do. Like, you get to invite other people to stir you and poke you into love and good works, and you get to prod and poke others into love and good works. Okay, and that, that's a blessing, so we can help one another persevere and draw near to God. Okay, and so two applications as we, as we think about this. Um, drawing near, encouraging one another. And one admittedly has, there's an edge to it. There's an edginess uh, to this application. And the second one is more, more comforting. Um, so the first one. Uh, I remember when I first started out in ministry, a teacher of mine told me, he said, you know, especially in this culture of like everybody feels like they need to be extraordinary, and that includes pastors. A lot of pastors, especially younger pastors, they overestimate what they can do in the short term but underestimate what they can do in the long term. And that's, that's profound advice, and that, that's wisdom. And that, that's true not just for pastors, but for anyone, really. When you commit, if you're a parent, if you're a friend, when you commit to a people in a place over the long run, massive things happen. And as we think about this, like this call essentially to be a community where we, we love each other enough to welcome one another. We love each other enough to stir one another to love and good works. For that to happen optimally, that requires a thick community of deep levels of trust. Right? It, it can happen, you know, in newer churches, absolutely. It can happen with people who don't know it. But the way it happens most intensely is the longer people are together. And so on this note, just something I want to challenge you with is because oftentimes we end up, you know, just by default thinking through the lens of our culture or thinking through the lens of our natural impulses rather than through the lens of the gospel. And here in D.C., uh, cost of living is lunacy, okay? It is, like, I, I get it. And part of Kelsey and my story is 
we were really trying hard to move to a different area uh, because of cost of living. And so that's another story for another day. And it's also, it's a lot of pressure to live here. It is. And I'm totally sympathetic to that. But see, often what the default posture happens toward people who are in this area is it's insanely expensive and it's a lot of pressure to live here. If I, if I have kids, if I don't have kids. And so what happens is we live here for a while, right, to establish ourselves in our career, and then we move somewhere else. And it's even more common now, you know, as we think about where you can keep like a DC salary, but then move somewhere where cost of living is cut in half. I just want to lovingly challenge you guys here. And here, like, hear me, we always want to be careful as a church never to put down thou shalt, where the Bible doesn't say thou shalt. So nowhere in scripture does it say thou shalt live in DC your entire life. It doesn't say that, okay? To be very clear. But what does it say? In multiple places, it says, have the mind of Christ. And part of the mind of Christ is that being rich, he made himself poor so that through his poverty, we can become rich. Like Jesus went to a place where it cost him a lot more to live, this earth, where it was way less comfortable, where he was betrayed and crucified right before rising from the dead in order to draw us near to him. And so I just want to encourage you, as you think about the future, because the default is, often is, okay, eventually I'm just going to move, where it's just easier to live. I just want to ask you, the opportunity here is to at least pray and think about, would having the mind of Christ change my approach to how I think about staying in this area in order to continue to invest in a church? And by the way, it doesn't have to be doxology, right? But this is just a principle we need to carry no matter where we live. Right? I know some of you will move and should move for different reasons. We just, we need to think about things more through a gospel-centered lens, right? And the impact that can make on a community because, you know, if, if believers keep leaving this area, I mean, one of the questions is who will be left to invest in other people who come into this area? And so it's, it's an opportunity that you have. Um, and I, I came across, uh, there's an article it was, it was in the Atlantic, and the title was something along the lines of, like, why you should wait out the crazy housing market. And it was just talking about the insanity of the housing market over the last year and a half. And he was talking about, you know, this idea of how just, you know, prices are skyrocketing, people are looking at, you know, working remotely, moving to a cheaper area, and so forth. And for a lot of houses in more affluent areas like this, like, you basically need to offer cash, like, full cash plus a shrine to their descendants in order to get the home. But he said something interesting. At the end of the article— um, the author was consulting a housing expert, and the housing expert, the final line of the article was, I just want to remind you all who are, like, looking for a home, relationships are more important than a house. And this is even a secular person who perceives this, that relationships ultimately matter more than the home we have or where we live. And so just want to lovingly challenge you guys to think about, you know, as you think about your future and where you're going to be, whether it's at this church or any other church. Okay, so that's the first thing. Uh, that's the more edgy uh, challenge and, and application to this idea of encouraging one another and meeting together as a church. And the second thing is this idea of stirring one another up to love and good works. So we're in a culture that's, you know, increasingly indifferent at best toward the gospel message. And so as you think about being a witness this year, uh, often people will be indifferent toward what you believe initially. But when you abound in love and good works toward them, motivated by the gospel, suddenly that Christ becomes a lot more compelling. 
And one example from my life is before I was in full-time ministry, Kelsey and I worked in the same company, and one of our coworkers, uh, he found himself in a difficult financial position. And this individual, he had said in a staff meeting uh, not long before, you know, to everyone there present, you know, religion doesn't guide my life. So it was okay. He was guide, you know, doesn't, uh, he doesn't follow Jesus or doesn't seem like it. And we found out he was in this difficult position. And so our community group, just un- unknowing to him, put together, uh, we pulled together our resources to put into one check and to give him some funds to help him with this financial problem he was in. And so we approached him at work. We just, you know, asked him to, if, if we could see him for a second. And we just said, hey, we know religion, it's not really your thing, and this may sound totally weird to you, but we believe that Jesus gave up his life for us and then rose again so that we can be in relationship with him and be brought into an eternal kingdom. And because he first cared for us, we want to care for other people. And so our church, we, uh, we just put together, uh, we call it an offering, and we put together an offering, and we just, you're not allowed to say anything, we just want to give it to you. And uh, because of what Jesus has first done for us. And so we gave it to him. And we parted ways, and that was that. And uh, later on, uh, I think this was the, the next day, an email came in to my inbox. And this is what it said. <clears throat> and this was from this individual. I'm still speechless from what you all did for me. My family teared up when I told them what happened, and I spent a large part of the night lying awake trying to figure out what to say. I can't thank you enough, not just for yesterday, but for everything you've been in my life. I'm happy to say I've been influenced to going back to church, and and I'm now a regular at a local church. God may work in mysterious ways, but through you and your church, it couldn't be more clear. And I thank him for that. And I share this story because in the moment when we gave him that, Kelsey and I thought we were terrible witnesses. You know, we thought we botched our gospel presentation. You know, we thought we hadn't loved him as well as we could have over the past year. And you know what? We did botch the gospel presentation in a lot of ways. It was awkward. And we hadn't loved him as well as we could. You know, our, our, our speech and our actions toward him weren't amazing. But we serve an amazing God. And when you just do the simplest act of abounding in love and a good work towards someone, and they know that it's Jesus who's motivating you, that can change someone's life eternally. And so we draw near to God through our our personal reading and prayer, yes, absolutely. But also we draw near by meeting together regularly, welcoming and encouraging each other, and then stirring one another to abound in love and good works, not just so that we persevere, but so that others can know the love of Christ as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that uh, you first drew near to us and welcomed us in, and I pray that you will help us as a church family uh, to have our eyes open to what takes place when we gather Uh, to think about gathering on Sundays and throughout the week, not just as what I get out of it, but how we can encourage one another. And I pray that um, you will do things maybe that we don't even see until the day that you renew all things of uh, how you used a group of flawed uh, works in progress people uh, to spread your fame uh, within this group of people into the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.